One of my students, whom I will call Joe, is basically a kid who wants to do the right thing, but uh, often he has a little trouble with self-control and, and attitude sometimes and motivation. He's, he's in second grade. Uh, this week, uh, during class, he sort of called out a few times very loudly, and he was getting a little out of control, so I, I drew him aside. And uh, now second grade is the last period of the day. So I've been teaching all day. So usually, you know, even though I like second grade a lot, by this point I'm a little, uh, <laughs> a little tired. <laughs> and uh, so uh, normally I'd be pretty stern and, and corrective in my tone. But I was, I was thinking about this student, and I, I wanted to kind of encourage him to do the right thing. So uh, after I talked with him about his behavior, I said, you know, Joe, you're a good student. And he said, no, I'm not. And I was like, very surprised, you know, that a, a second grader already had this image of himself, you know, it's just, just bad. And I said, uh, anyway, so in response, I, I reminded him of the good things he could do because I've seen him, you know, do the right thing. And uh, I know he knows how to do it. Um, and then uh, after our chat, you know, I, we, I pulled him aside and then the rest of the class, he did a great job. He participated and he was enthusiastic. He was engaged. He was respectful, everything. And at the end of the class, you know, uh, the kids were lining up and I said, uh, so did you do a good job after we talked and expecting him to be like, oh yeah. And he was like, no, you know, and I was like, well, <laughs> I, I didn't understand. And, uh, I, again, I reminded him of the specific, you know, good things that he did. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of you. And he said, you know, thanks. Ultimately, what is going to help Joe is that I believe in him, that I am choosing to be kind to him, that I have his best interests in mind. Kindness, compassion, patience, and grace. These are what should be motivating me to correct him. And I think it's the same way with God towards us. Now, this is not to say that Joe doesn't need correction or that I have to be nice to him no matter what so that he can just be as bad as he wants to. Joe, like us, needs discipline, correction, guidance, and tough love at times. Grace, however, should be motivating me overall. Romans 2 verse 4 says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And this is a, a verse I really think about a lot. It's his kindness, his grace that leads us to repentance. It's not his wrath, nor is it our good works which causes him to have grace on us. The problem is that we may understand that God, that God has grace for us in our minds on, on some level, but do we really understand deep down that his grace motivates him in all things? Are we on the inside still afraid of his condemnation or trying to measure up with all of our striving and self-determination? So this is the problem I'd like us to tackle today, to really get God's grace into our hearts. Today's sermon is called Motivated by Grace. God is motivated by grace in three ways that I will talk about. I'm sure there's more. Um, calling covenantal faithfulness and compassion. That's right. I made it into three C's, so it'd be easy to remember. 
We know that he is motivated by grace through his calling because he sovereignly chooses us. In covenant, he partners with us by grace, and in compassion, he saves us. So let's begin with the first one. God's calling us shows that he is motivated by grace. Well, let's define our terms here. What do I mean by motivated? I mean that he chooses us, partners with us, and saves us based not on our goodness, but based on his goodness. And what do I mean by grace? Because that's the word we hear a lot, right? Well, all of the biblical words that are translated for grace add up to a lot of a very full definition. We can understand that it means loving kindness. It means faithfulness in response to a covenant. Chesed is, uh, is related to that. Undeserved favor and steadfast love. So again, how is God motivated by grace in calling us? Well, why did God choose Abraham and make him the forerunner of Israel? Was it by grace through faith or something that Abraham earned? The first calling of Abraham, or Abram, as he was known then, occurs in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. Let's read it together. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God initiates the calling of Abraham, not based on anything that he has done so far. There is no mention of his goodness or being particularly worthy. In fact, the rabbis have wondered for centuries, why? Why was Abraham who was called? The short answer is, that's who God chose, for his own reasons, by his own sovereignty. God's calling, his purpose, his choosing of Abraham is not based on Abraham's worth, but the sovereign choice of God. Yes, Abraham is called to obedience as part of the covenant, as part of that calling, but that comes as a result of God's grace, God's sovereign choice. What about God's choice of Israel? Was this based on merit or grace? Well, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9 says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, here, this passage actually has all three manifestations of grace that we're talking about today. You have the calling, you have the covenant, and you have compassion to save. But since we're focusing one at a time, we'll just look at the calling part. With respect to God's choosing Israel, Hashem is motivated by grace, not because they were special or strong or great, but because he loved them. If we ever feel that we are not good enough to be chosen by God, we have to remember this truth. He does not choose those that are good enough or have earned it, but he chooses us by his grace. The calling of Israel and our calling is because of God's love for us. By grace, God chose Moses, even though he was a poor speaker 
and even though he lost his temper and murdered a man. By grace, he called Gideon, even though he was small, weak, and lacking confidence. By grace, he called Jacob, even though he was conniving and disingenuous at times. None of these earned God's call, his purpose, his chosenness. They were all chosen by grace. I saw a a poster once that I'd like to share with you. It it kind of lists all the weaknesses of of the people we think of as heroes in the scripture who were all called by grace. Let's, do we have a picture of this? Let's look at a letter. So here we have Noah was a drunk. And you can go through. We have Jacob was a liar, which I mentioned. Joseph was abused. Gideon was afraid. Elijah was suicidal. All of them, all of them had struggles. None of them earned it. At the very end, this is my favorite. Lazarus was dead. So nothing's going to stop God using you. Thanks. But even if Moses and Abraham and Jacob are called by grace, how do we know that God also calls us without regard to our deserving it? You and me, I mean. I mean, these, these are the heroes of the faith. Are we also called like they were? Well, Romans 8, verses 28 through 30 says, and this is another one of my favorite verses. Let's read it together again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if, if we are disciples of Yeshua, that means we must have been called according to his purpose. God chose us beforehand for this purpose. And those who have been called, like us, have also been justified or made right with him by his grace through faith. In summary, we know that God is motivated by all of our good works and striving to choose us, right? Oh, just seeing if you were paying attention, you know, the middle of the sermon. He is motivated by grace in his calling us and choosing us, just as he was for all of the heroes of the scriptures. Now, on the other hand, grace is not an excuse for us to revel in our character flaws or not to grow. Moses lost his temper at times, but he learned the consequences of this because he was not allowed into the promised land until, of course, the Messiah came. Jacob was a conniver, but he was humbled by wrestling with God. And he, uh, I think he uh, hurt his hip bone, right? And then he repented to his brother whom he wronged. Gideon did not allow his weakness to prevent him from trusting the Lord to use him mightily. Grace enables us, but it doesn't enable us. That's right. It enables us to walk in our calling, but it doesn't enable us in the negative sense as an excuse for sin. And this brings me to the second way that God shows he is motivated by grace, through his covenantal faithfulness. The scripture from Genesis 12 of Abraham's calling also describes the initiation of God's covenant with Abraham and with the children of Israel. 
And God shows his grace not only by making the covenant, but especially through keeping his covenants. Because that's where we see human failings enter the picture. Yes, we are called to complete our part of covenantal obligations, but God's faithfulness to complete his covenants are still based on grace, not our merits. So why do I say this? Well, one of God's important covenants was the promise to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and to prosper them in the land of Canaan. By the way, do you have your Passover tickets yet to the community saver? Passover is coming up. I hear they're selling like matzah cakes. Those are very flat hotcakes. Anyway, uh, as I was saying, the covenant was to bring Israel out of Egypt. So let's see where this enters the picture in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God, rem- <laughs> That's very good. and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So basically, God heard the groaning of the Israelites under slavery. And that caused him to remember the covenantal promise to Abraham. Let's imagine that for a second. So everyone, just, just pretend you're doing some back-breaking work. You've you got to push a giant... Remember, you're building the pyramids, right? Pushing a giant stone or something like that. So let, let me hear your best groan. Oh, that's very good. All right. Come on, this is hard work. Let me hear another one. Oy. You know, if I heard my children doing something like that, I don't have any children right now, but in the future, if I ever heard that, I'd probably say something like, use your words. You know, you're just, just complaining, just groaning, right? And that's what the Israelites were doing. They weren't, they weren't crying out to God specifically to help them. They were just groaning, just like you were. God's response, however, is real grace. God remembers his promise to Israel, even though they're not crying out to him directly, even though they're not meriting it. And throughout the story of Israel, they're not faithful to the covenant, but Hashem is. This does not mean they have an excuse to do whatever they want, for there is discipline. But rather it means that God's grace remains faithful to his promises, even when Israel falls short. There's a scripture that I think captures both of these ideas really well. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, we find this. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. You see the difference between the top part and the bottom part? The first one is saying, if we deny him, right, then that's not, it's not an excuse, right? Grace is not an excuse to deny God or disobey him, but it still shows that he is faithful if you look at the bottom part. It means that God is not motivated by Israel's faithfulness, but Israel is motivated by God's faithfulness. Let me say that again. God is not motivated by Israel's faithfulness, but Israel is motivated by God's faithfulness. 
In the first part of the book of Jeremiah, it's very clear that Israel has not been faithful to the covenant of Torah with God. But in Jeremiah 33, verses 25 through 26, here is the Lord's response to Israel's unfaithfulness. This is what the Lord says. If I have not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. It's, it's kind of, this passage kind of reminds me of like a, a love song, right? You know, it's like, when the stars fall from out of the sky and the sun ceases to rise, is the moment I will no longer love you faithfully. <laughs> Meaning that I always will love you. Right. So in other words, thank you, thank you. Just as the day and the night and the laws of heaven and earth are firmly established, so too will Hashem keep his covenants with Israel and not reject them and eventually bring them a descendant of King David to rule over them and restore them fully. In other words, Yeshua's kingship is a sign of God's covenantal faithfulness to Israel, just as he said in the prophets, like Jeremiah. In summary, God is faithful to his covenant, not because of Israel's faithfulness, but because of his grace. And this brings us to the third manifestation of God's grace that we're talking about this morning, his compassion to save us. Many of us know that scripture says that we are saved by grace. It's a very common idea. And the scriptures we've looked at have shown this as well. In taking the Israelites out of Egypt, God showed grace not only through choosing them, not only through remembering his covenant, but he compassionately took them out of Egypt. He saved them from slavery. God saves Israel by his grace, just as, as he saves us from the slavery of sin by his grace. But how can we internalize this truth? I have a, a friend in Messiah. He often engages in conversations with Mormons. It's, uh, and he, he really reaches out to them. He can even quote passages from the Book of Mormon and compare it to Scripture, which he's, of course, also memorized. One such passage he likes to bring up is uh, it's, it's a, based on a verse that may be familiar to us. Because Joseph Smith, he's the, the founder of the Mormon movement, he was familiar with the Bible. So he would take pieces of the Bible and, and sort of twist them to make his own thing. Um, so the Bible passage reads like this, and it's from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The passage in the Book of Mormon reads, For we know that it is by grace we are saved. And then it adds, After all we can do. My friend then proceeds to ask about this last part to the Mormons he meets. After all we can do. It's a strange twist, isn't it? So he'll ask, did you pray today? Yes. But you could have prayed more, right? Yes. So did you do all you can do? No, I guess not. Did you read scripture today? Yes. 
But you could have read more, right? Right. His point in asking these questions is to get them to see the flaw in this theology. There is no amount of good works which adds up to all we can do. Rather, his grace is sufficient when we are not. If we look at all our good and pious deeds of the day, none of them ever adds up to all we can do. Thank God that this is not in agreement with the scripture of the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This theology can creep into our own hearts as well. I think many of us believe in our heads that we're saved by grace. Or maybe we've heard this phrase thrown around, but we haven't really thought about it that much. Is it possible that we in our hearts sometimes wonder if God's grace is enough? Does his compassion cover all of my sins? Have you ever said, you know, I know your grace is normally enough, but for the things that I've done, for the evil thoughts that I've had, for the sins I've done in secret, I'm not sure. But the truth is that if we have repented and turned to Yeshua in trust, his grace is always enough. Do we secretly have a theology in our hearts of earning grace, trying to measure up, working for acceptance of our Father in heaven? Or are we cultivating an awareness of God's compassion for us and our humanness? Are we spending our energy beating ourselves up or feeling guilty or feeling stuck for not doing all we can do? Or are we motivated by God's grace and compassion and love, secure in how he feels about us? Now, on the other hand, we should not take advantage of God's grace as an excuse for sin either. Grace that saves us from the slavery of Egypt and the slavery of sins is not cheap, but comes with a price. Saving us from Egypt required the ten plagues. Saving us from sin required the death of Yeshua the Messiah on the tree. Tonight, Saturday night, we have the opportunity to think about Yeshua's sacrifice for us as we celebrate the Shulchan Adonai, or the Lord's Supper. We have the opportunity to take the grape juice and the bread and recenter our thoughts on the price of his grace. Doing this as a community can ensure that we don't cheapen grace, but that we respect it. And so I want to encourage all of us to come out tonight for this important reminder. And if you can't come, you know, maybe take some time during this Havdalah and think about the price of grace. Now, as we've seen, God is motivated by grace. So we should be too. We should be motivated by grace toward obedience. We must recognize where we're thinking incorrectly about his grace and remind our hearts of the truth. We can't earn his acceptance, but he accepts us now. We can't earn his love, but he loves us now. We can't white-knuckle our way through obedience, but his grace can motivate us to obey him. We must take a stand against guilt and shame and works-based thinking in our own hearts and proclaim the truth. Do you remember my student? He will be more likely to behave and participate when he knows that his teacher cares about him. My showing grace to him 
can allow him to be motivated by grace, to be the student I know he can be. With discipline and correction, grace can be very powerful to transform us. Today, we have seen how God is motivated by grace and that we should be as well. May his choosing us, his covenanting with us, and his compassion on us be our reason for following him. May we seek to obey God, not to earn his grace, but because of his grace and compassion. Let's pray. Abba, we thank you for your word, which is truth. And we pray that it would take root in our hearts and um, that we would both be motivated to obey you by grace and uh, that we would remember the price of grace, both. That we would keep these in our mind and uh, that you would uh, correct our, our wayward thinking and uh, that we would be rooted in your love for us and how you feel about us and your acceptance and your, um, and your good and pleasing love, O oh God, that, that empowers us and makes us able to do what you've called us to do. And I pray that we would go forth today and do those things and think that way. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.